Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This podcast contains violence, adult themes, and material that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. It was important for me to actually make the statement because this is one of the only opportunities that we have to be able to actually outline how this affected us. And literally every one of my closest friends, like lives was shattered that night. And my life hasn't been the same. I literally have been scheduling my entire two years around attending court and making sure I'm there for friends. It's a miracle I graduated. He deserves to know what he did, not just obviously to Taylor, but to people around him. He, uh, he took away a lot. It wasn't just one life. He took away dozens. It wasn't just, it's not just, I, not to take anything away from Taylor, obviously, but like it's, it's, it's a lot of the, the people around him. Now that, now that the sentence has been imposed, do, does that offer any kind of comfort or any measure of closure for you guys at all? Not until the appeal is officially, uh, until he has been literally told by every single court in Canada possible that your conviction stands, you are guilty of first degree. Until every option is taken away and every glimmer of hope is uh, extinguished from his life, I'm not going to be satisfied. Are you going to follow the process and attend the next round of court? Oh yes, and I expect you to be here when I'm 50 years old if he gets a parole hearing. Taylor is one of the biggest influences in my life and I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to make sure that everyone knows how fantastic of a person he was. The wheels of justice turn slowly, but grind exceedingly fine. And for one Nova Scotia community and family, many years have passed since the name of their son's murderer first hit the media spotlight. A lengthy, confusing, and at times circus-like trial eventually convicted the man of first-degree murder. But today, that man sits in a prison not to be punished, but to await his new trial. When will the wheels of justice stop moving and deliver some relief to a grieving family? This is the murder of Taylor Sampson, and this is True North True Crime.
Hello everyone and welcome to episode 28 of True North True Crime. Thanks for joining us. If you are new to True North True Crime, we are an independent podcast bringing awareness to missing people and victims of violent crime in Canada. If you would like to donate to the podcast, you can do so at buymeacoffee.com slash tntcpod. It can be a one-time donation, or if you'd like to become an honorary producer of the podcast, you can choose the $5 a month member option. We would like to thank some folks for buying us the coffee for this week's episode. Thank you to Susan Sherrard, Alex and Andrea Price, Sullivan Baker, Kalina, Michelle Mertzu, Nicole Maynard, Desi Rothwell, Cassandra, Cam, Emma Armstrong, Jesse Dwayne Ryan, Kennedy, CJ Gize, and three anonymous donors. We appreciate you for keeping us caffeinated while we research, record, and edit the show. So tonight we are talking about the murder of Taylor Sampson, a 22-year-old university student living in Halifax, Nova Scotia. We chose this case as we do not feel that justice has been served. This case has a few twists and turns, and ultimately time will tell if the person responsible will be punished. We put this episode together using publicly available court documents and news articles. Our audio clips came from the Canadian Press YouTube page. We know that Taylor's family is dealing with a tremendous amount of grief caused not only by the murder, but also by a sometimes flawed court system. We stand with the Sampson family in their fight for justice, and we hope that this episode will help others to learn of this senseless crime. So this case takes place in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Halifax is the capital of the Canadian province of Nova Scotia. Halifax is located on the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people. The city of Halifax has a population of just under half a million residents. The eastern-facing Halifax Harbour has been an economic hub for the Atlantic provinces. Because of the harbour's accessibility to the Atlantic Ocean and thus Europe and beyond, Halifax is a major part to the world supply chain. Halifax is also home to all forms of Canadian military, including a major dockyard and naval base. Nova Scotia is an absolutely beautiful province, by the way, with uh, major tourist destinations like the Cabot Trail and Peggy's Cove. Halifax is home to a couple of major Canadian universities. One of them is St. Mary's University, and the other is Dalhousie University. We don't profess to know Taylor, but we have done our best to research what we could about him. Taylor grew up with his family in Amherst, Nova Scotia. He has a younger brother named Connor, and his mom is Linda, his dad is Dean. We don't know much about the family dynamics, but we do know from articles about the trial that this is a close-knit and loving family. Taylor was a big and athletic guy, standing 6 feet 5 inches tall and around 210 pounds with brown eyes and short brown hair. He enjoyed playing baseball. He was a self-taught guitar player who often posted videos of himself playing guitar for his friends. Taylor went to Amherst Regional High School. His many friends and family describe him as goofy and the kind of guy who laughed so loud your ears would ring and hugged so hard your ribs would hurt. In 2015, Taylor was a physics student at Dalhousie University. He deeply understood the challenges that first-year students faced. So he created a YouTube channel dedicated to helping young students struggling in first-year calculus classes. He also ran a tutoring business, but again, he understood the financial constraints that students faced. So he would reduce his rates to incentivize the progress of his students. University life looked good on Taylor, and he was really dedicated to his fraternity, Sigma Chi. Taylor seemed to love people and helping them and making them feel included. His mother, Linda, remembers fondly how crazy he used to drive her. 
He'd come in the house and I'd be in the living room and he'd walk right by and he'd go, mom, 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 mother, mom. And he would stand there looking at me and say, where's my hug? Like most students and people, Taylor struggled with financial obligations. So he decided to go into business and Taylor began selling marijuana. Much has been made of his marijuana business in the media. Reports have called him a drug dealer, but his family and many other people have a different perspective. His family and friends are not ashamed of Taylor's marijuana sales, saying he did it to pay for university. His mom says Taylor sold marijuana to help get through school. That's what he did. People don't like it? Well, too bad. Friends say that Taylor wanted to move out of the marijuana trade, and he had the mind of an entrepreneur. We need to stress here that this case took place in 2015. Marijuana was legalized in Canada in 2018. So just three years later, and Taylor would have been a legal entrepreneur in Canada. So a lot has been learned through the investigation into Taylor's murder. In the summer of 2015, Taylor Sampson was introduced to another Dalhousie University student named William Sanderson. The two men had been introduced by a mutual acquaintance in the marijuana business. On August 13, 2015, William Sanderson came over to Taylor's apartment to sample some of the marijuana that Taylor had been selling. William, it seems, was keen to get into the weed business. William asked Taylor if he could hook him up with 20 pounds of weed in exchange for $40,000. The two men came to an arrangement and set up a time to meet two nights later on August 15, 2015. On the evening of Saturday, August 15, 2015, Taylor and his girlfriend had plans to go out. Then, at about 10.30, Taylor told his girlfriend that he had to step out for a minute to head a few doors down the road to another apartment to quickly visit a friend. He said he would be right back. He left his wallet, keys, and prescription medication behind. He was carrying a large black duffel bag. In that large black duffel bag was 20 pounds of weed. Taylor did not return home that night. On Sunday, August 16th, Taylor did not show up in Amherst at the home of his mother, Linda, who was expecting him for Sunday dinner. She tried to contact him, but was unsuccessful. Police were notified and Taylor was reported as a missing person. Taylor's family then traveled to Halifax to search for Taylor. The case was assigned to the Halifax Regional Police Major Crimes Unit on Monday, August 17th. The police learned that the last call to Taylor's phone came from an IP address located at a group home for persons with disabilities. The police went to the group home to find out who had been communicating with Taylor. It turns out that William Sanderson, Taylor's new acquaintance, worked at that group home. But he wasn't there when the police attended. A co-worker contacted William on Tuesday, August 18th, and said that the police were looking for someone who had been communicating with Taylor from the home. William Sanderson then contacted the police and met with them that afternoon. So who is William Sanderson? As you all know, we try not to create a lot of space for suspected or convicted murderers in our episodes. And if you haven't guessed it yet, William Sanderson is a suspected murderer. But we will give you a brief bio of who he is. Yeah, a lot was made out of um, this in the media uh, because William is actually a med student. So the media really kind of ran crazy with like, oh my gosh, a med student did something so horrible. So um, we want to put that aside and we will tell you what we know about William. 
So William Sanderson was about to start his first year of medical school at Dalhousie after completing one year of medical school in the Caribbean. He worked two jobs, and he was a member of Dalhousie's track team, and he lived with his girlfriend. I think she lived there sort of on and off at the apartment. William had a $200,000 line of credit with a major bank, um, and he received this line of credit because he was a medical school student. His mother had to co-sign on the loan. He owed approximately $70,000 as of August 2015. His family was reportedly not happy about the debt. William lived in an apartment with a roommate on Henry Street in Halifax. His family lived in a farm in the nearby town of Truro, Nova Scotia. William, as we stated, was also involved in the drug trade. He also owned a 9mm handgun. William Sanderson met with the police on the afternoon of August 18th and gave the first of three statements. He said that the last time that he saw Taylor was on Thursday, August 13th. That night, he sampled some uh, of Taylor's weed, uh, but he thought it was poor quality and he didn't buy any. According to William, the two men arranged to uh, meet one another again on August 15th so that he could sample some other weed that Taylor had in a larger quantity. William then told police he waited for Taylor on the evening of August 15th to meet at his apartment on Henry Street and that Taylor texted that he was outside. William said he went outside, but Taylor wasn't there. He said they spoke briefly on the phone, but did not meet. William said he texted Taylor and suggested they get together the next day. William said he received no response to that text. At the end of the interview, William let the police look at his phone and take photographs of his text messages with Taylor. After William left the station, the police reviewed the text messages and became concerned about the inconsistencies between the text messages and the information William had provided. In particular, the messages revealed the planned drug deal was a large transaction for 20 pounds. The text also seemed to suggest that Taylor had not failed to show up as planned, contrary to William's statement. In, in fact, it, the text showed that he did show up. As a result of the inconsistencies in the information provided by William, and out of concern for Taylor's health, at approximately 6.30 p.m. on August 18th, the police decided they had sufficient grounds for a warrantless, exigent search of William's apartment. Meaning if the police believe that a life is in danger, they can search a home, car, or property without a warrant. This is known as an exigent search. The search was conducted shortly after 6.30 p.m. on August 18th. The police did not find Taylor in the apartment. Upon a cursory search of the apartment, they did not see any signs of foul play, but they did see a surveillance system connected to a DVR a quantity of magic mushrooms, and an empty box for a handgun. After the exigent search and watching the surveillance system, police arrested William for misleading the police, kidnapping, and trafficking. He was arrested between 8 and 8.30 p.m. on August 18th. A larger search warrant for William's apartment was ultimately granted at approximately 4 a.m. on August 19th. The search and examination of William's apartment indicated an attempt had been made to clean the apartment. Despite the cleaning efforts, blood was found that contained Taylor's DNA. Cash was seized and a 9mm gun, loaded with one bullet, was found in a locked gun case. The gun was found to have Taylor's blood on it. A bullet lodged in a windowsill in the apartment was found to have Taylor's DNA on it. Expert evidence indicated that the bullet could have been fired from a 9mm, a 38, or a 357 caliber firearm. 
The police noted there was no shower curtain in the apartment's bathroom. After his arrest on August 18th, William was interviewed a second time. In this interview, he denied any knowledge of what happened to Taylor. A third interview took place on August 19th. William maintained he did not know where Taylor was, what had happened to him, or whether he was alive. However, during that interview, William said three men had entered his apartment dressed in black and wearing masks. He said they attacked him and Taylor. One of the masked men had a gun. William said he was struck on the head and fell to the floor. He did not see what happened to Taylor, but there was a lot of blood. The intruders took the large duffel bag, the money, and exited through the front door with Taylor. William said he was scared and panicked and cleaned up as much as he could. He states that he threw out his shower curtain because it had blood on it. Well, it turns out that the police had video of Taylor entering the apartment, and this video was recorded on William's own surveillance system. The video does not show Taylor exiting the apartment, nor does it show masked assailants entering or exiting the apartment. Now, after William was shown some of that video from the security cameras, William then said that two men had been hiding in his roommate's bedroom when he and Taylor were in the kitchen. They had come in through a window which opens onto the rooftop where there's a barbecue. They were wearing black, quote, morph suits like ninjas that covered their faces. They then came into the kitchen. William claims the men pointed a gun at Taylor and shot him once. He states the two men put Taylor in the duffel bag with the marijuana and most of the cash and carried it out the front door. So just a quick fact check here. He is saying the two men put Taylor Sampson into a duffel bag and carried him out. Taylor was six foot five and 210 pounds. Also, there was 20 pounds of weed plus cash in the bag. This doesn't seem even remotely plausible. Although William initially said that he had not seen Taylor get shot, he eventually said Taylor was shot in the back of the head. He claimed that the masked men were initially just trying to scare Taylor, but that things escalated. We now, of course, know that this was all lies. At this point, William Sanderson was arrested for the murder of Taylor Sampson. So let's get into the truth of what happened that night and the trial after a quick break. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And we are back. So let's chat about a couple of things before we move on to the trial. Before the break, we spoke about William's police interviews. We did find video of the interviews, and we have chose not to include those in the episode because the audio quality is just 
terrible, really. But we can tell you what we observed. So in the first interview, um, William is quite confident. He is speaking to the investigator in an almost lighthearted way. He sits in front of the officer while occasionally looking at his phone. And he continues in the interview to claim that Taylor never showed up to meet him. By the end of that interview, he's chatting with the officer about his upcoming camping trip with his girlfriend. Now, in the second interview, and this is the one where he subsequently was arrested at the end of it, and this is where he starts bringing up the ninjas and the morph suits. In that second interview, um, he's much different. He's hunched over and mumbling answers while a detective stands over him repeating his mumbles back to him. In this interview, he claims that the men came through the bedroom and killed Taylor. Now, the reason that they interviewed him multiple times is that he had text messages between him and Taylor that proved that they had actually met that night. These texts start at around noon on August 15, 2015, the day Taylor was murdered. From noon until around 8.30 p.m., William kind of yanks Taylor around. He says he's in Truro and needs more time. He changes the meeting time from 9 p.m. to 10 p.m. Okay, so I'll read William's texts. And I'll read Taylor's texts. Yo, man, sorry for running late. Just hit the crib. Give dude five minutes or so to clear out. Then I'll meet you at the door. Side glass door. Let me know when you're on the way. Or if you're walking over, I'll help out with the baggage. I'll be over. Side glass door? Like where the laundromat is? Yup. That side. Rolling big bag? KK. I'll be there in a minute. It's just you there, right? Yup. Sounds like a party next door, though. Actually, whole dude, bunch of traffic. Okay, they just said they're leaving in five. I asked. I'm out back of the building now. Is that your bike parked by the door? I'm walking out now. These texts end at 10.30 p.m. Then at 2.23 a.m., Sunday, August 16th, 2015, William sends the following decoy text to Taylor. William, this isn't cool, man. You said you'd be right back. Want that stuff. We now know that Taylor would have been killed at this point and William was cleaning up his crime. So let's talk about what we learned really happened that night. Security video recordings show Taylor arriving at William's apartment at 1210 Henry Street at about 10.30 p.m. on August 15th. Taylor is seen carrying a large black duffel bag. William has two neighbors who lived across the hall. In court documents, they are referred to as Blades and McCabe. Blades and McCabe heard a single gunshot at around 10.30 p.m. The two men listened quietly at their door to figure out what was happening. They listened, but they heard nothing except furniture scraping on the floor. Within a minute or so of hearing the gunshot, William knocked on McCabe's door, looking panicked. William had shot and killed Taylor as he sat at the kitchen table. William walked back across the hall to his own apartment. Blades and McCabe followed him to the threshold of the apartment and looked inside. Taylor was slumped over in a chair, dead, with blood running out of his head. Money and drugs were on and around the kitchen table, also covered in blood. No one aside from William and Taylor were present in William's apartment. Blades and McCabe also noted that William began running around his apartment, not trying to help Taylor, but instead telling Blades and McCabe that he needed to clean up. He was picking up bloody money off of the floor and off of the table. Blades and McCabe were surprised by what they saw and returned to McCabe's apartment. 
Later, Blades and McCabe returned to William's apartment, where they saw that Taylor was no longer slumped over in the chair, and there were streak marks leading away from the chair towards the bathroom. William appeared to have dragged Taylor's body to his bathroom. William asked Blades to bring his car around as he wanted to dispose of Taylor's body. Blades refused to help, and instead he and McCabe left the apartment building in fear. William then shut off his video surveillance system between 11.33 p.m. and 12.58 a.m. This was likely when he removed Taylor's body from the apartment and put it into the trunk of his car, where Taylor's DNA was later located. William cleaned up his apartment and used the black duffel bag to carry Taylor out of his apartment. Taylor's DNA was also found inside the black duffel bag. William's girlfriend arrived at the apartment at about 12.30 a.m. on August 16th. She noticed the apartment smelled of bleach. Surveillance video showed William cleaning out the trunk of his car later on the morning of Sunday, August 16th. On the morning of Monday, August 17th, video surveillance showed William removing garbage bags and other items from his apartment while wearing gloves. Also on Monday, William goes over to his brother's home and hides a backpack filled with marijuana in his brother's basement. Cell tower records and bridge tolls indicated that on Tuesday, August 18th, William was in the town of Truro, where his family has a farm. Later, investigators found items at the farm consistent with those William removed from his apartment. Taylor's DNA was found on some of those items at William's family farm, including a shower curtain and a large duffel bag. It's worth noting that Taylor's body has never been found. But at trial, the Crown prosecutor would present a very strong case. This included witness testimony, surveillance video, text messages, DNA evidence, and cell tower data. Other evidence would show that despite the cleaning efforts, blood was found in areas of the apartment that contained Taylor's DNA. Blood spatter on the gun was consistent with a person being shot at a distance of two to four feet away. That blood also contained Taylor's DNA. The gun also had the DNA of William Sanderson on it. A bullet lodged in the windowsill in the apartment was found to have Taylor's blood on it. The Crown Prosecutor contends that William lured Taylor to the apartment with the intent to murder him. They showed evidence of the financial struggles that led to William robbing and murdering Taylor. The defense would argue that yes, a violent altercation had occurred, but that William Sanderson did not have anything to do with the crime, basically stating that he was a victim himself. In their closing arguments, the defense would present the following account of the crime and rebuttals of the evidence. Defense would state, The prosecutors believe William Sanderson to be a criminal mastermind. Mr. Sanderson is not a criminal mastermind. He didn't think things through. He certainly didn't expect any of the things that happened to happen. Defense said the police and Crown tried to make evidence fit their theory, stating, They have achieved results in their own mind, and they are trying to fit everything else within that frame. Defense asked the jury to ask themselves a number of questions when considering the evidence, including, why would William have kept his own video surveillance system running if he intended to kill Taylor? Defense also asked the jury to consider why, if William had carried out a premeditated murder, would he leave his handgun in a safe in his bedroom, and why he gave police text messages between him and Taylor that described a drug deal. 
Defense said evidence has shown William was aware his neighbors were home when Taylor arrived at his apartment and asked the jury why someone who planned to carry out a murder would do so knowing there were people in the apartment next door. William's former girlfriend testified at the trial that she smelled bleach when she returned to William's apartment later that evening. But defense argued that someone can be involved in cleaning up a crime scene without being guilty of murder. Defense also suggested that police did not follow up on all possible leads in the investigation and only looked at the evidence that supported their theory while handling evidence poorly. As for the money and the debt being the motivation of the murder, defense said that William had more than $120,000 available in credit as well as a credit card and a checking account. The defense attorney would state, quote, the question of financial motive just simply can't exist. You've got to reject that. There's no evidence whatsoever supporting it. In the Crown's closing arguments, they would lay out the crime and the motivation. The prosecution stated that they don't believe William is a criminal mastermind at all, stating, a plan to murder someone doesn't have to be a good plan. The prosecutor said William wanted to meet Taylor at his apartment because he wanted to kill him and couldn't do it anywhere else. It's not the Crown's job to prove a motive for the killing, but it believes Sanderson needed the money and that a big drug deal could solve his financial problems. The Crown told the jury that William had used $72,000 on a line of credit. In text messages, his parents expressed concern about his debt. William reassured his father that the line of credit would be paid off by September. Crown reminded the jury that just hours after Taylor was murdered, William texted someone and bragged to them that he had just paid off his student loan. Of course, this can be inferred to mean that after killing Taylor and stealing the weed, he had now just paid off his student loan. In her closing arguments, the Crown prosecutor said there doesn't need to be a body to prove murder. She told the jury the evidence shows William not only killed Taylor, but that it was planned and deliberate. After the Crown finished her closing arguments, quiet sobbing could be heard in the Halifax courtroom. After three weeks of pretrial motions, eight weeks of trial, and four days of deliberation, on Sunday, June 18, 2017, at 11.50 a.m., a jury convicted William Sanderson of the first-degree murder of Taylor Sampson. After the verdict, Taylor's mother would yell, Take a bow, Will! Taylor's mom, Linda, would go on to state, quote, He's been arrogant. He doesn't care about his family, my family, Taylor. It's like, you're the one who wanted this trial. You wouldn't take a plea bargain, so turn around and take a bow. He's a psychopath. He has no feeling, no emotion. It's all about him. He wants something, he takes whatever he wants, and he doesn't care how he gets it. Taylor's father, Dean, said he was satisfied with the verdict, but still felt torn. It's a horror story. My heart's ripped out. At sentencing, the court would hear 18 victim impact statements. An additional 10 statements were presented to the court, but not read aloud. The statements depict a deep loss among those who knew Taylor Sampson, including his family and friends. This murder significantly impacted a large group of innocent and caring people. The judge would state the following, quote, The planning and deliberation in relation to the taking of a human life results in the harshest sentence available in Canada. In accordance with what I am mandated to do by the criminal code, I sentence William Sanderson to life in prison. 
his parole eligibility is set at 25 years. As William was being taken from the court, Taylor's mother would yell, Where's Taylor, Will? William would not respond. So we would normally end our story here and say case closed. But sadly for the Samson family, this ordeal was far from over. So let's get into the appeal and where this case sits today after a quick break. And we are back. The audio clip we just played was a mixture of jubilation and grief being expressed by Taylor Sampson's family and supporters. You can hear Taylor's grandmother stating that she feels bad for William's family having raised someone like him. But sadly, their relief would be short-lived. The defense would file an appeal. William's appeal lawyer cited four grounds for the appeal. They included whether a warrantless search of William's apartment was justified, whether his charter rights were violated during two of his police interviews, or even whether the first-degree murder conviction was unreasonable. And lastly, the appeal cited the role of a private investigator hired by the defense who gave information to the police and the Crown prosecutor. Yeah, you heard that right. An investigator for the defense helped the police and the prosecution. The appeals court said they only needed to address the one ground related to the private investigator. In fact, the appeals court wrote that it would be improper to deal with the other three grounds, that includes the warrant and the interviews, because they may become relevant during a second trial. So what the heck happened? Well, it turns out that the defense team for William Sanderson hired a private investigator to interview witnesses prior to them testifying at the trial. This investigator is the one who originally found Blades and McCabe, the two neighbors. If you'll remember from earlier in the episode, they were last seen leaving the apartment on surveillance video. Well, it turns out that they had both moved out of province. They wanted nothing to do with this trial or the police. The investigator, who goes by the name Webb, was a former RCMP officer. Webb attended meetings with the defense counsel and was an active participant in the development of a defense strategy. But Webb became concerned that William was actually guilty of murder and hoped that he would be convicted. Webb was worried that the police were not doing enough to investigate the case. Webb first tracked down Blades, who had left Halifax and moved to Ontario. He was trying to live his life in a way that minimized the possibility he would be drawn into the case. 
Blades was fearful and hesitant to speak. Eventually, Webb was able to convince Blades that it was safe to speak. Blades disclosed to Webb a story consistent with the evidence he ended up giving at trial and inconsistent with his previous police statement. Webb told Blades he would help him give a statement to the police. Webb reacted emotionally to Blades' statement. On his way home, Webb saw a police officer he knew out walking his dog and stopped to speak with him. He told him about Blades' statement. On October 20th, 2016, Webb met with Blades and the RCMP investigators. He assured Blades that the police were trustworthy and encouraged him to make a statement. Blades agreed and gave a statement. Blades said he was providing a statement because he had had a change of heart and was tired of being scared. Webb, however, did not disclose his involvement with the police to William or William's lawyers. Instead, he set about finding and interviewing McCabe, who had also moved to Ontario. McCabe was also nervous about speaking to Webb, whom he thought was working for the Crown. As he had with Blades, Webb built a rapport of trust with McCabe. Eventually, on October 20, 2016, McCabe made a statement to Webb that was consistent with Blades' statement. Webb encouraged McCabe to speak to the police. A few days later, the investigators did interview McCabe, and he too provided a full statement. On November 8, 2016, Webb met with the defense team to report on his interviews of McCabe and Blades. He did not report on his contacts with the police. At William Sanderson's original trial, his defense team felt unprepared and surprised by this evidence. They asked the judge to declare a mistrial. The trial judge found the Crown had breached its duty of disclosure, but concluded that an adjournment and further cross-examination was the proper remedy. He dismissed the application for a mistrial. Okay, so that's a lot of uh, legal mumbo-jumbo, so let's just clarify it a little bit. Essentially, uh, the defense team felt kind of thrown off um, and caught off guard by the information that was provided at trial about Webb and that Webb had sort of switched sides, if you will. And they demanded that there be a mistrial. But the judge said, no, why don't we take a break? We'll take an adjournment. You guys can look at the information. And then I'll give you a longer cross-examination of the witness. And that should solve the issue. So the appeals court thought that the judge was absolutely wrong in not declaring a mistrial and instead saying, let's take a break and you can have a longer cross-examination. And the appeals court had the following to say, quote, the defense was simply not able to investigate the novel issue mid-trial. They were juggling the trial and multiple voir dires. They are coming up with submissions on the fly. They were reading cases over the lunch break. They needed time. The novelty and complexity of the situation arising as it did in the middle of a jury trial demands a remedy more drastic than an adjournment. And so for those reasons above, William Sanderson won his appeal and his conviction was quashed and a new trial was ordered. So in June of 2020, William Sanderson received the news that he is getting a new trial. In January 2021, a judge denied William Sanderson bail. He will continue to be held in prison until his new trial begins. So the Crown prosecutor in Nova Scotia did try to appeal the ruling by taking it to the Supreme Court of Canada. They felt strongly that they could get the mistrial overturned by the highest court in the land. 
Um, but in February of 2021, the Crown's appeal application was dismissed by the Supreme Court of Canada, meaning there would be a retrial in Nova Scotia and no reasons were given by the high court. So essentially, they had the opportunity there to put it forth to the Supreme Court of Canada and say, listen, there was no – there shouldn't be a mistrial here. This was a good, clean trial uh, and the Supreme Court of Canada refused to hear it. So it looks like we're going back to trial again in Nova Scotia. The dates for the retrial of William Sanderson, who is now 28 years old, were confirmed in May of 2021. The new trial is scheduled to begin January 9th, 2023 in Halifax Supreme Court and would run Monday through Thursday until February 22nd, 2023. Today, Taylor's family continue to live with the trauma that has been inflicted on them by William Sanderson. Despite their efforts, their son has never been found. A GoFundMe has been started to help the family with resources to find Taylor's remains. We will link it on our Facebook page, as well as in the show notes. There have been many benefits and fundraisers and community events to help this family. Taylor's mother, Linda, was in court for the bail hearing in January, just as she has been for every previous court appearance. After the hearing, she would state, quote, I wish this could get over. I just don't want to go through another five years of this again. I wish his parents would make him accountable for what he did and stop being naive and realize that my son is still missing and he's out there somewhere and I want to put him to rest. William's parents were in the courtroom for the decision. They left without making any comment to the media. At the Dalhousie University convocation in the fall of 2016, Connor Sampson, Taylor's younger brother, walked across the stage and received his brother's Bachelor's of Science in Physics. Today, Madam Chancellor, we're going to be awarding a degree uh, posthumously to Taylor Dean James Sampson, who receives a Bachelor of Science major in Physics. And here today to receive the degree is uh, Taylor's brother, uh, Connor, and Taylor's girlfriend, Mackenzie Ruthven. So this video of Connor accepting his brother's uh, Bachelor of Science is on YouTube, and it's really difficult to watch it without getting emotional. When Connor speaks of his brother Taylor, he talks about what a role model he was. As kids, Taylor was his superhero. Although Taylor gave him a hard time like brothers do, Connor knows it was because Taylor loved him and was looking out for him. When Connor graduated high school, Taylor watched the ceremony with tears streaming down his face. So it was only fitting that Connor would accept his brother's degree. We will be keeping an eye on this story over the next few years. We hope justice will come for Taylor's family and community. As resources become available, we will post them to our social media. With this podcast, we try to stand with the families of missing people and victims of violent crime. When we see a case like this, where all of the evidence points to guilt, yet a family is still being victimized, we need to talk about it. True North True Crime is an independent and self-funded podcast. If you would like to donate to the podcast, you can do so at buymeacoffee.com slash tntcpod. Our producers on the podcast are Amy's Book Reviews, Susan Sherrard, Alex and Andrea Price, Kennedy, Alberta Bly, Cindy McDee, Blair Martin, Alyssa Santos, CJ Gizay, 
Anastasia, Ariel Elliott, Melanie E., Kelly Donahue, Carolyn Moore, Emily L., Jason Dallas, Jimmy Hankins, Tiffany C., Keith Robertson, Mari McKay, and the Missing and Unexplained podcast. We will be back soon with a new episode, so until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe, gang. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.